0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sam. The Big Three, back at it it again with another chapter of Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, Today, we'll be looking at Chapter 5, The Emergence of Plastic People. But before that, Stephen, what are you drinking right now?
1: I am drinking a lovely cup of raspberry tea with honey. I am still very much on the honey train in tea. It's just, it is the best thing in the world. Plus, it's you and your honey
0: and you and your honey and your mead and Lent. uh, You know, it's a a whole thing you got going there. Uh, How about you, Sam?
2: I'm uh, drinking some Johnny Walker Red Label. Neat. Mm. Um, During Lent, I'm giving up other things this year. And I figured I, I, I don't drink alone during Lent. I don't drink alone normally, just to be clear, but I especially don't drink alone during Lent, but among friends, I will have, I will indulge.
0: And the truest friends are online friends. This has been demonstrably proven uh, throughout all time. Uh, As for myself, I am merely drinking water. I am far from home and my uh, home bar. So, alas, I shall suffer uh, and just watch both of you longingly from my hotel room. You could have
2: made one of those little Keurigs that you have over there.
0: No, this is the cheapest hotel room you've ever seen. This is true (laughs) by Hilton. And this room is like, it's, I'm, I'm only exaggerating slightly when I say it's just like a plastic cube. There isn't a closet. It's like sort of tried to be stylized so that it's like, oh, look, it's fancy. You don't need a closet. We just have this indentation in the wall. But like, yeah, it's it, it, I'm in a plastic cube. The TV doesn't work because it says like the channels are out of range, and the all of the soap is in giant bottles on the wall that you squeeze with your hands on either side. It's, it has an incredibly like industrial feeling. But they have these dystopian like uh, motivational phrases like when life gives you lemons, stroke a shark skin and keep going, or like just like not like absolute nonsense like 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 uh labels from Chinese products that you get on, on on Amazon that some of us know about. And anyway, it's a miserable experience. It's just, it's plastic everywhere, uh, which is a great transition to the chapter we are discussing this week. As I said, chapter five, the emergence of plastic people, Sam.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to try to get through this. I have a terrible cough right now. And apparently my doctor prescribed the strongest cough suppressant he can give me. At the pharmacy that's a mile away, but I didn't have a break today to actually walk to the pharmacy. So you're going to deal with me hacking or
1: <coughs>
2: or Brevin's going to have some fun editing all these out. So we'll see what happens here.
0: No such luck. People just get
2: to listen to it. Oh, good. Well, enjoy the remnants of uh, COVID.
1: Happy third year anniversary, everyone. I could have sworn it was only going to last a few weeks. You didn't need to say that. That's only hurting yourself. Um, I knew you guys were thinking it, so I just wanted to I just wanted to rip that band-aid off. Okay. Don't worry. We'll 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 give you plenty of crap later.
2: Chapter five, the emergence of plastic people. Struman looks back at Taylor and Reef's concept of the expressive individual and the psychological man. And he notes one of the striking characteristics is What it means means to be human is its plasticity, the flexibility and the malleability of human nature. Consumerism gives this idea of self-creation, but he looks farther back to three key philosophers of the 19th century, those being Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Freud calls this self-creation an illusion with obvious limitations. Obviously, we can't fully create ourselves and we're not fully malleable. Humans are limited by the number of goods they can access on the market, um, what is socially acceptable, and the physical limitations of the person, their sex, their place, their time, and income. However, all these ideas, um, despite all these limitations, many thinkers in the 19th century look at how, in different ways, we are plastic and begin to develop this idea that we are fully plastic and can transcend these ideals set forth by Freud. This brings us to the bulk of the chapter, where Truman goes through Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin in sequence to show how these thinkers helped shape the way that we view human nature as lacking all limits. First was Nietzsche, one of my um, personal favorites, actually. Nietzsche truly calls the bluff of the Enlightenment by recognizing its logical extreme. Uh, Truman quotes a long passage from uh, Nietzsche's The Gay Science, which I think is pretty phenomenal. The passage recognizes all the true aspects of removing God. When this is done, everything changes. There's no, there's no way to orient oneself, and you have to make your path on your own. Just to read a, uh, about a paragraph from this, which I found remarkable, quote, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whether is God, he cried, I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers but how do we do this? How can we drink up the sea? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from the sun? Do we hear nothing as yet the noise of the grave, dig- grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How then shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. And whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will bring it to a higher history than all history hitherto. I think that passage, aptly summarizes the impacts of removing God from the discourse um, that happens in the Enlightenment. Uh, Nietzsche recognizes that laws of the universe and knowledge and wisdom aren't concepts, are not concepts that are uh, un, uh, in, incompatible with the universe without God. They're all dependent on objective reality and an objective uh, thinker, and therefore must be dismissed. Morality can be reduced to herd instincts. And he turned all of this to an attack on Christianity. He first attacks Christianity's theologian instinct, where it gives objective status to personal taste. He especially hates this in Christians and Kant, where we'll pick one concept, do not murder, and say that that's true in the name of God, but not it, it consider all their perspectives. And we do this in all sorts of ways. He sees it throughout the Christian life. And I think it's a, it's a valid critique of many hypocrites. His second attack is turning morality into psychology, where he realizes that you can make all moral arguments in, in psychological terms. Morality becomes less of a, a statement of what one must do and more discussion of why people do things. And this leads him to his <clears throat> repugnance towards Christianity that Christianity is opposed to anything that makes psychological sense. It therefore must be evil. Christianity exalts the weak and and puts down the strong. It encourages charity when one must look after themselves. It looks it, it, it places constraints of history on people when really they must be looking forward and forging a new path ahead. Everything that one must psychologically do to survive in a universe without God is hindered by Christianity. He then states that humans have created these moral codes, whole cloth, and thus those are what enslave them. Uh, He gives a little thought experiment to his readers, which is to relive, if you had to relive your life eternally, would it be horrible or inspiring to you? Which highlights the fact that Nietzsche is not really a nihilist. He does say life lacks a transcendent meaning, but it still does have some meaning, meaning to oneself, which one must take on. And that leads to a focus on the present. What should you do now? To have the biggest impact uh it then comments on the self-creation and what what the content of the self-creation should be that being it should be first of all have personal style it must be unequivocally you and authentic and then secondly related to this it must be deeply personal Nietzsche still recognizes that everyone has different faculties um, and limitations so even though we're all starting from different places we still have a responsibility to create a work of art with our lives. Marx uh, develops this idea in a more economic sense. Taylor asserts that first in order to understand Marx, we have to understand Hegel. Uh, Hegel's arguments of self-consciousness changing over time and how the spirit of the time impacts how people act in that time, thus driving people forward in the dialectical way. Um, talks about he- or Hegel earlier in the book, so... This is just a reapplication of that. Marx's major move was moving from the ideal to the material. Um, Marx asserts that the spirit of Hegel is just material that's being processed by the human mind and given meaning. We're living in a dialectic of class relations, not abstract ideas, um, which again asserts that human nature is highly malleable by these external material factors. Now, Marx is famously critical of religion, and that should be discounted, but he does have some... More insightful points than just criticism, where he points out that religion is more of a reflection of mankind um, and of our ideals, and thus serves as a way to alienate ourselves uh, from ourselves. Uh, see Freibach, where the questions of religion are really questions of our um, of our morality. It's us making moral statements and putting God behind them in order to back it up. However, both Mar- Marx and Freibach, 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 both Marx and Freibach. Um, agree that religion is pointing to true pain that people are experiencing. And that must be considered.
0: All right. So building off of that into more specificity of where the concept of human nature ends up. So the first person through which Truman is looking as Sam's been describing, is Marx. So Marx is the concept of human nature. And for Marx, human nature is tied to historical circumstances. For example, one could say that it is human nature to desire money. However, money does not exist in a vacuum. The money needs to exist first. Nonetheless, that can be part of human nature to desire money, which is to say for Marx, Human nature is tied to historical circumstances. It's always in flux. It's in response to the material, social, cultural conditions of the time, mostly the economic and material. So, what this means is that for Marx's story about human nature and what humans want, legitimately, with no judgment to it, technology becomes key. So, as technology changes, that changes the material conditions of humanity, that changes what human nature is. It's in flux as far as that goes. So for example, the example that's given, uh, as work becomes less and less a matter of who can lift the heaviest rock and move it from there to here, that changes the shape of society, for example women suddenly have a lot more options relative to men in an information society and the technology that exists underlining it. This means that there are many new and different options for how people can exist. Therefore, the desires and wants and human nature itself, in a way, is a reflection of those conditions. Like Nietzsche, morality for Marx has a genealogy. But instead of being this story of failure and moving away from the heroic ancients, Uh, Via Christianity. For Marx, it's economic. So the religious vibes of the time, the ethical codes, all of that just is simply to serve the causes of economic interest, economic warfare, class struggle. All of these things are sort of subsumed under his larger theory of the material circumstances basically being upstream of everything else. And so is human nature, of course, being reflective of material circumstances, whatever those are mediated by technology and, and the circumstances of time. However, Marx does have a teleology that is, you know, the contradictions in capitalism will eventually be break out and resolve and you have your communist utopia in, in the end. The other figure that Truman brings in here, though, is Darwin, who he sees as representative of the end of teleology. So just sort of back up where we've come from. If for Nietzsche, human nature is a trick, a trick of Christianity, you have to create your own. If for Marx, human nature is a process, it's economic movement over time. For Darwin, human nature is purposelessness. There is no purpose to human nature, at least in the final implication. This is his addition to what the other two have already started. There's a quote from article from the Proceedings of the, nation, uh, the National Academy of Sciences that Truman quotes at length, and I'll quote it here, quote, it was Darwin's greatest accomplishment to show that the complex organization and functionality of living beings can be explained as the result of a natural process, natural selection, without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent, end quote. What this results in, in the end, is that the world doesn't need a designer. There's nothing further outside of what we see. It, For all intents and purposes, from our point of view, where we stand now, it all arises from itself. There is no thing outside of us outside of this that we're witnessing it is sufficiently explained by evolution that how we can end up here today without any external force so there is no transcendent necessarily there is nothing outside of ourself and i say necessarily because that was the previous view so you know you can make a you know uh, uh, christian evolution that all of those arguments exist all of the that debate can be had but the point of Darwin is that it opens up the possibility of a world in which there is no necessary thing outside that leads to where we are today. There is no necessary purpose, and therefore there is no necessary teleology. If the world doesn't have a, desi- a designer, that there is no designer to have a purpose to what exists. It could be that what is simply is. So to that end, nature then loses its teleology. There's no longer a purpose for the frog and the tree and the grass. It's simply, doubt oh, there's a tree and the frog and the grass, and it was the strongest tree in the grass out of the billions of other trees and, and uh, frogs and grasses that could have been, but they survived. They were naturally selected, and here we are. And by extension, neither do humans. Humans don't have a purpose. Under this paradigm, under this overarching philosophy, once you cross-apply it from nature itself, uh, humans lose a lot in this, if humans are the result of a random process with no intelligence, no design behind it, they don't have a purpose. They don't have an ethics. They don't have a destiny. Random processes can't generate that in any meaningful sense. It's just simply what happened to happen. So then to sum up where we've come through Truman so far, and we've come quite a ways, he would say that of the people that he's talked about so far, Darwin is... Probably the most influential, even though he gives him a relatively glancing look, both for the points that I just stated—in that it took away this necessary design element—but uh, also for science, his legacy. It becomes a priesthood in a way, and he's not the first to make this point, nor will I'm sure he will be the last. And the whole COVID nineteen COVID nineteen pandemic and the various debates over scientism, the authority of science, have just put this all into stark relief for us in the very near past, and well the current present as it as it were as well, science as a cloak of authority and legitimacy on whatever topics it chooses to baptize. Uh, often one could one would probably say for political purposes. Nietzsche's contribution here is a historical relativism this genealogy which results in a distrust of authority you're very much about the present because that's what you can affect that's what you can will in in the moment the past is the construct of you know weaklings and christians and fools and we can create we must create rather things for ourselves now and finally marx uh gives us history as a history of oppression where everything is power being exercised. There is no order, necessary good order that is being upheld. Rather, it is economic interests it is class interests. All of these things ultimately tie back to money in people's pockets. So there is no pre-political, there is no innocent softball league that's an expression of class power inevitably. There's no small politics, there's no neighborhood associations, there's no polis of living together that is innocent and can escape from this economic struggle that the classes have across time. So all three of these thinkers, he ties back to the Taylor idea he introduced very on, and that is of the difference between Poesis and Mimesis. Mimesis being the idea that one views the world, the universe as having some sort of order that there is to observe, follow, and join into, whereas Poesis is the idea that you must create it from whole cloth, that instead you are handed raw materials and you must construct it. And that's Marx, that's Nietzsche, that's Darwin. It's raw, it's raw material that we must create what we will. So then to sum up where we are at the end of all of this, of uh, Rousseau through the Romantics and then these three figures here in this chapter, uh, Truman wants to leave us before he moves into the sexual revolution. There are sort of, two or three things that he wants to leave us with the first is a sense of sort of anti-historicism there's an anti-historical uh nature to the modern self in in two senses the first sense is that it's because history is bad it's a history of oppression it's a it's of corruption it's of the christian church and its weakness morality its slave mentality uh and all of this you know badness that is behind us there's nothing to learn from it only to Break it down and move past it. The second thing that's anti historical is that where we come from doesn't matter because society through Rousseau and the Romantics is a corruption. It's something that makes the authentic self worse. It's something that needs to be excised from you so you can live true and free and dance among the sunflowers and, you know, be a simple country boy wandering the backwoods of England. That's who you really are. You need to get out of all of this nonsense in the cities, which, you know, I do sympathize there. And the final point that is left here. Uh, with all of these thinkers, is that there is no um, pre-political society, that there isn't a point at which there is a private life, there is a public life. It's all one and the same, because the enemy is either its class struggle or its slave morality, or it's simply the corrupt society around you that prevents you, that interferes with you becoming and encountering your authentic self in, in the nature or in your own reflection or in the storm or whatever. And it's at this point, we have a person who is a plastic person who believes that they must create themselves from nothing, that they must change their identity from what has been handed down. There is nothing good behind them, only what's in front of them and what's in front of them, they must create under their own will. They must craft for themselves. They have to silly string their own will out into the future. And that is where we will enter into Freud and all of the rest of uh, Truman's story here.
1: Yeah, so So, gentlemen,
0: Oh. oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no Stephen. please no, go. go for it. For it.
1: If you want to queue us up, go for it. No,
0: if, if you have something to say, I was going to reach for something. <laughs> okay. Uh,
1: no, I just so far, I have thoroughly loved the story that he has been telling. Um, it, it kind of, your nice kind of encapsulation of everything that has come up, I think, really does a good job stating what he has been building up to and even as you guys were discussing the idea of nietzsche saying that we need you know we need to make meaning for ourselves immediately i just thought oh yeah he meant truman mentioned this in taylor's discussion on poesis and mimesis, and just kind of all of these themes he just kind of keeps bringing back up it's almost like like it feels like a piece of music with just these different themes that just kind of keep popping up over and over and over again you're like oh I recognize that. I recognize that. It, I, I think in a lot of ways, this book has kind of set a new standard for kind of history of thinking or history of thought. As much as I liked McIntyre, there were times where, that he was quite difficult to follow. Um, and we kind of Weaver similar. I didn't, some of his historical arguments I wasn't overly impressed with but man just everything Truman says just kind of like keeps wrapping back in on it himself so just more on a meta note I really do like the kind of the the story that he's weaving here yeah I mean this it, it seems like a logical conclusion right after you kind of
2: the romantics are are striving to find themselves and are trying to transcend ideas but mostly through like art and poetry right and then he does he does start I mean Nietzsche was writing after Marx and around the same time as Darwin, if I'm not mistaken. But now I'm going to take a timeline. <laughs> Let's pause a second. Let's check that timeline. Here, Stephen, are you looking at Marx or Nietzsche?
1: I think Darwin was earlier. Marx was 1818 to 1883. Nietzsche was 1844 to 1900. So he was. he was after, so Nietzsche was after Marx. And, and Darwin was right in the middle. He published Origin of Species in 1859. Vaguely 20th century. I did I, yeah. I did actually, this was kind of the first time it occurred to me, kind of how much Darwin really impacted the social imaginary. Um, in, in the sense that, oh. I guess, I, I've always reacted strongly against the whole Darwin bad because evolution thing. Um, I guess still a bad mm-hmm. taste in my mouth left over by the Creation Museum. That said, it really it, if you if you just simply say that Darwin replaced the myth of creation with a new myth of creation, or it, like he he replaced our cre- creation myth, uh, myth being a story whose truth is more important than its its historical significance or its its, its historical fact. That is that is a massive thing, and it is quite mm-hmm. tragic. I mean, I mean, I'm not even sure if he necessarily set out to do anything like that. He was simply just assigned who found something out and knew that there were going to be some philosophical implications, but I think was just trying to kind of do what he had to do. Um, but man, yeah, just like you go to the average person on the street, you ask them the the implications of evolution. There is something, or not the implications of evolution, but like talk to them about evolution and there is a certain imaginary that will come out, out of that. It becomes conceivable
2: to have a world without a god and without a god, without objective morality. I mean, of course, there is there is the, like, what what started it all, right? And that's where you can reinsert God into it. But it's a major shift from, like, we were created, you know, 4,000 or 6,000 years ago, and this is the genealogy, and it's all wrapped up here. You need to, to abstract it a little bit. And that, yeah, that, that greatly changes reality I mean it wasn't that like the church was more opposed to it on those grounds as far as I understand was it kind of saw the writing on the wall and was like no absolutely not even though it's mm-hmm. to the state like I don't think the catholic church disputes it right I mean, you can you can hop in here if you know anything but it doesn't dispute the facts of evolution or the the theory of evolution it disputes the conclusion drawn about God it learned its lesson with the whole Galileo thing uh,
0: I believe that is where the the church is in that it you know it, it doesn't specifically state how creation came about God could have used any number of ways and we are free to use our reason to explore what those possibilities could be uh mm-hmm. learning one's lesson of The Galileo situation. Sam, we took the same classes in undergrad. I am disappointed in you that you would buy into this Protestant Masonic propaganda about the Galileo situation. You know full well it was because he was writing caricatures of Pope Pius the whatever. And that's why he was censured because he was a little uh, shit poster. That's why he was uh, put on trial. Did we
2: just get an explicit marking, Brevin? Give <laughs> 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 me a bleep <oblique> that.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure we've gotten it uh, before, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, yeah. So to, to to think about the when
2: you talk, talking about Protestants, anyway.
0: Yes, always, always when I'm talking about Protestants. So to jump into the content of, of the chapter proper. I I do think the, I mean, I think Truman is right. And I I think we're all kind of saying it, we're all dancing around it in that the Darwinian shift is certainly the closest to like a episteme shift to, to bring in some Foucault here. Stephen, I'm sure you appreciate that in that it is age, it gives the ammunition for the change to a fundamental understanding of reality in a different way than um in a different way than someone like marx does marx you know says religion is false but his grounds for that is something more you know on the politics side in, in that it's 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 always used for it's always used for um political power purposes uh for imminent purposes let's say instead of transcendence despite its um ostensible trappings with these so darwin i think Especially how Darwin becomes popularized, becomes a cultural icon, ushers in this age of scientism. I think, undisputed, that's probably the core, the core most powerful plank in, in this platform that he's been building. The thing that I do struggle with, just because I feel like we need to say it at, at some point with this narrative, is something like how popular is Nietzsche actually? How much does Nietzsche actually in, influence? The popular perception in his time and future i mean because we're not even to the 1920s and sort of the height of enlightenment optimism which is going to be the progressive movement in the united states and and elsewhere and you know sure he may be popular even uh Marx for uh for that matter there's some research i believe that i've i've seen you know he, he's not necessarily that much of a mover and shaker intellectually until something like the russian revolution where he is the you know the chosen founder of that of that movement and such as his, his popularity and knowledge spikes because the you know marxist leninists are like hey yes yeah, this is our guy this is where we're getting it because there are other kinds of socialism as a good friend of mine once said although i don't believe he has these politics anymore you know socialism is too good of an idea to be left to the left and there is some truth to that in things like you know communitarianism, distributism in the sense that, you know, you like local communities, you have a distrust of centralization and all that, you know, there's nationalism. Sure. There's, there's certainly something to be left in, in all those planks and not to say that Marx isn't influential. He obviously was, but a large part of that is because of the Soviet union, or at least I would think that I'm happy to be corrected, but that seems like a reasonable statement to make. Um, So all that being said is this story that he tells is a very classic one that we recognize from uh, ideas have consequences, and other books that we've read, and that, you know, it's the idealist's tale. Uh, and I guess I'll end here because Sam knows where I'm going, probably.
2: Well, uh, no, I don't know where you're going unless you're going to the the next section, but I, I want to talk about Nietzsche a little bit, like my, my walrus boy. Uh, he, please cut that out. Uh, wait, wait the, his, the what boy? I, I said my walrus boy. and realized that was bad. Uh, cut that out. Uh, wait,
1: Nietzsche. hold on. I wait, I don't get oh, it. Remind the me must- the reference. Is it the mustache? Okay. Yes. Oh. No, we've that's more worse. We've, we've called him the OG incel.
0: Honestly, I'm going to sure. take yeah. this whole discussion that we just had about you like walrus boy, OG incel, and I'm going to put this all right in the intro of this podcast that's because it good. was a fine joke. Good. Well, yeah. Good.
2: Good, good, good. Nietzsche, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think he, I probably know he wasn't incredibly popular during his life or even immediately afterward, but he's popular now mostly because he's edgy and because of how he writes because he writes in a really unique style where he'll say things i mean and, and this is from a lecture i saw Nietzsche like a few years ago but the professor was saying like he'll insult you to get you angry in order to get you to pay attention So then two pages later he'll actually tell you what he wants to tell you and so he'll insult christians or he'll insult women two pages before talking about, like, women's liberation. And so you can take him out of context to mean almost anything. But his core philosophy is pretty, I mean, the, the core of his philosophy being, like, this is what happens when you kill God. This is the mantle that we need to pick up, at least the, the core philosophy that you see in the gay science in it aka okay, homo in the genealogy of morals um i i mean i think that's a total like a, just a true argument like this is what we would have to do to to if we were to kill god and it just like um says here he compares that with like Dawkins and just this optimistic atheism of like yep you don't have god and i love it (laughs) it's just i don't know i i wish i could meet an atheist who was a a Nietzschean atheist who was like oh yeah i hate that there isn't a god and i you know try and and wrestling with taking on that mantle i think it would be a wonderful conversation and instead all the atheists i know are just so snarky about it that you can't really it's it's unrealistic you couldn't be that happy to have to have no meaning in your life i mean or, or no meaning unless you're personally fulfilling yourself and becoming the greatest possible man you can be which i i don't know i don't i don't see that kind of like mantle being taken up
1: which i believe nietzsche did not think of himself as that man that was taking the mantle mm-hmm. he was lamenting and, and saying like we need the Ubermensch to come and kind of show us how this how this is going to be because where I mean, he was he was almost in despair over it um Mm-hmm. uh regarding his I mean intro- I don't know
0: but but sorry sorry I just got to jump in here and make a quick shout out to the to the real ubermensch who of course is a you know tier 5 uh reddit nod on 45 different subreddits also regularly edits wikipedia uh to bring you know to take out anything that could be possibly complimentary to christianity and i just want to say hey shout out to you uh you know at hold on hold on I was going to do something inappropriate. I need to think of something slightly less. So, um, <laughs> uh, shout out to you at God is Dead, actually uh, spelled, you know, A C K S H U A L L Y 45. You are the ubermensch and we all respect you. So, you know, chest pound, uh, hats off, fedoras off to you. Uh, Steven, sorry, you were saying something real.
1: I'm sure that individual feels very euphoric right now. Uh, I. I actually do contest the claim that he was—he only became popular recently. Uh, he it, certainly during his lifetime. It took a while for him to be discovered, but World War One soldiers were reading him in the trenches. Mm. Uh, copies of *Thus Spoke Zarathustra* were spread out to like inspire soldiers, and then lamentably, oh, I thought that was World War
2: Two. Oh, no, World War II, War His
1: sister, you. So his sister used uh, his his material to help prop up the Third Reich in. World War II, a lot of stuff was taken out of context and used to justify anti-Semitism. And also, so like, he was not an anti-Semite, but his frame, so anti-Semitism aside, his framework of, we're going to build this mighty civilization and we will be, we will either burn out completely or, it, I, I think he had some analogy with a phoenix or something like to, the, to that effect, but pretty much, uh-huh. we're gonna go all the way or we are going to burn on a massive f- funeral pyre And that sort of adds to, you can Mm -hmm. detect throughout the entire German war machine, their whole sensibility was, we're going to take on the world, Mm -hmm. and we're, we're either going to get bombed to absolute rubble, or we're going to, well, take it over. And for more of this, please do see our uh, our live act or our live broadcast on or not live broadcast, our, our recording of "It's Wonderful Nietzsche." That's about all I got. He was popular. I, thought, I,
2: I guess I had my facts wrong. I thought it was World War Two, but you're right; it was World War One. So yeah, never mind. He was popular, but it was still a good 15 years after his death, and a good what was it? What Would it be like almost 30 years after his mental breakdown. So yeah. yeah.
1: To be really fair, I can't help but feel that a lot of thinkers it takes a while for their stuff to disseminate out I mean even look at the mid 20th century stuff that we're we're going to start experiencing, or we're going to get into um people like Foucault or Derrida or uh Simone de Beauvoir or etc etc cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it it took until like the late 90s early 2000s for them to really start making their way through like it, I mean I have to imagine it's fellow colleagues, make them popular with their students their students grow up they teach their kids and it kind of gets embedded into the social fabric it, it takes time for this sort of stuff I mean,
2: to me it's such a small world that yeah it's it's really like teacher to students and yeah. you do that for a couple like a generation or two and it's spread
0: yeah so like far far be it for me to you know demean the influence of a guy who tweeted edgelord stuff so hard that he ended up gibbering on his pillow and then you know like 30 years later ended with a multi-million body count uh in the largest war the world has ever seen but beyond that point i do wonder and this is actually going to tie into what i want to transition to now which is our article and my criticism of it how much of this is sort of a retrospective of not him influencing the world that he was in but rather him picking up on and describing things and i don't think people would disagree with this i don't think this is controversial but him describing the world that he's seeing around him slowly falling apart that no one else is seeing but what that means is that his ideas aren't the cause rather he's merely diagnosing again what's happening all around him seeing it happening around him and the cause is something else perhaps something more on the order i'm you know this is my hobby horse that i always hit you know the more Material side of things, perhaps, like the 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 Marxian train here. But
1: no, I'd be willing to countenance that. Uh, of all the thinkers brought up by Truman, I think it is Marx. Marx was a lot more novel. I, I I think I would argue Nietzsche had his finger on the pulse, and I think I two things that were important first to your point i think he did just kind of say hey this is what we're experiencing and kind of provided a mythology for it his is very, like his writings are very much an atheist mythology and i i think that that's that that thing that cannot be understated i disagree with other religions as much as you want to their mythologies are important and they, they have an impact, even if you think that they're they're wrong or just describing the culture kind of a la uh, Firebuck, that they're just kind of a reflection of that society. Okay, well, that doesn't mean that they don't have cultural impact. I think, oh, shoot, I had something else. Man, Stephen, it seems like you're losing your memory.
0: Man, Stephen, oh man, that sucks to lose your memory, almost like you're cursed. Well, you know, one curse that our society has allegedly been put under, and that is... The Curse of the Boomers. That's right. Our article this week, Cursed by the Boomers, by R.R. Reno, editor of First Things Magazine. Stephen, you have chosen... Well,
2: first, we've got to apologize to our one Boomer listener for this insult. We're sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Or
0: madam. It was an interesting enough article. Have you considered they deserve it? Stephen, let's find out.
1: Indeed, so I was perusing First Things and encountered this article called "Curse of the Boomers" and cursed by the Boomers. Sorry, I can't speak today. And incidentally, I am still lamenting the fact that I couldn't remember what I was. Many such cases, uh, um,
0: including our president.
1: Oh, heh, touche. Um, it was a clickbaity enough article uh, on First Things to to kind of get me, and I, I I was intrigued by it. Bre- Brevin mentioned that he may have some criticisms and I think there are plenty to be applied. It does seem like a lot of kind of cherry-picked ideas. But on the whole, I I think I I, I brought it to your guys' attention because I was surprised to find myself Quoting this article like four or five times this past couple of weeks uh, it, it, for a rather innocuous article, it made quite the impact. So I'd be interested to see what, what you guys think of it. Um, Reno opens up with uh, with quoting Niebuhr, one of the more famous uh, early 20th century Christian thinkers, uh, and says that, quote, Niebuhr recognized that the fall of man puts severe limits on what we can achieve in public life, no matter how pure our intentions, which in any event are never as pure as we imagine, end quote. And then he he cites the fact that the ancient Greeks had a view of tragedy, um, and tragedy as the result of, of the fact that no heroic action comes without a cost. And basically said that one of the things that characterizes the greatest generation, the generation that kind of encountered World War I and II, is that they were very aware due to these experiences, they were very aware of the inherent brokenness of humanity, the fact that the human experience is filled with compromise and tragedy. Uh, It kind of tragedy in the Greek sense of, sure, you want to do a great thing? Great, go for it. It's going to have costs that you are not going to necessarily be be able to handle. And as such, they understood the idea of compromise. Um, And he brings up kind of example of after example of presidents in the mid 20th century Making some, especially kind of now what we would consider to be pretty hur- kind of horrifying, or maybe not horrifying but difficult, and no, to, and kind of horrifying decisions. Uh, just what needed to be done, and they had very nasty consequences. Um, he he brings up a lot of kind of rather shady maneuvers with uh, uh, various South American governments or or Vietnamese uh, governments, and. kind of all rallying in defense against communism and whatnot. And indeed, America won the the Cold War against communism, but kind of at what cost? And he says that presidents understood that it was going to come with cost. He contrasts this with the idea, or with the, the generation of baby boomers, and says that they were raised in inherently optimistic waters. And they're convinced that everything that they do must be for a good reason, that their motives must be pure. But they still kind of have the same end goals, and he he criticizes them and says that your motives actually really matter in this case. Um, and the the idea of the fact that unlike great generation leaders, which would say, "Well, it kind of sucks, but we're we're going to like we're going to assert American hegemony, we're going to make sure that we're we're safe because this is just a good thing for us to do." I uh, Baby boomers kind of like the idea that, quote, what's best for America is what's best for the world, end quote. Um, They're very convinced that, like, we can kind of have our cake and eat it too, that if we rise, everyone rises. Uh, Quote, baby boomers, or baby boomer leaders, enamored of their moralism, have blundered because they lack a tragic sensibility. They refuse to acknowledge the realities that always limit what can be achieved, and they sink from the often ugly, even cruel compromises that are necessary in a fallen world, end quote. And he applies this uh, to a number of various uh, fields within kind of American social political issues, uh, everything from capitalism to unreflective and immigration policy, uh, to to drug issues, and he, he ultimately concludes that, quote, American needs leaders who accept the tragic character of human history. It is not the case that the Clintons, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and other big boomer leaders have kept their hands clean. In politics, business, media, and other fields, boomers have waged fierce battles for wealth, power, and prestige. They've made endless compromises. The problem rests in their moral outlook more than their concrete goals. End quote. So, on the whole, I thought it it was a unique enough take, and I was intrigued by this idea of an inherently optimistic generation versus an inherently, let's say, realistic generation. Or, or realist or real politique uh, generation, and so I'm I'm curious what you what you guys have to say about it.
2: Well, thank God our current president is not a baby boomer. Oh, absolutely, he is indeed Silent Generation, 1942.
0: That must be why I forgot, and also uh, previous mentioned speaking issues. So my my number one uh, problem with this article, and and actually this this may be a somewhat of, of a surprise, uh, is basically that. Reno is naive. Here he is decrying naivete. On the other hand, like, okay, I will fully, you know, I'm fully of the opinion that the Cold War was a necessary fight against communism. That would have been a very bad idea for everybody involved. It's tended to prove that way when left to any degree of their own devices communism does not end up well on the other hand the greatest generation in their fight against communism happened to be the generation that had that rather stark moral and pretty rel- and that relatively easy framework handed to them once you get to the baby boomer presidents the cold war is over there is no more easy distinction between you know the reds and everybody else that you have under the greatest generation. The Cold War is an easy war to fight because you have this monstrous axis of evil, to quote, dear departed Ronald Reagan, that's a very easy thing to stand up against and to set your own principles up and over. Once you get to the baby boomers and Clinton, you have this very interesting post-Cold War mentality that we still haven't figured out we're going to do with and i think there's both sort of you know practical prudential considerations of how does the world's sole superpower or perhaps one of two superpowers orient itself in a situation where it does not have a clear existential threat or enemy to orient itself against um but on the other hand the greatest generation presidents never had to make that choice they never had to to think about that so there's there's that first consideration of his sort of a a historicity. The second problem, the second core problem, is Reno is sort of quickly sweeping under the rug a lot of the abuses and excesses that happened in American foreign policy. Under oh that's the tragic few. Oh you know we just had to. In, in, I don't have any particular knowledge of these things, but I'm I'm, I'm well aware that they. oh we just had to arm the contras. Oh we just had to you know keep sending the people who are murdering civilians in such and such a jungle. Ah, oh, we just had to do that. Oh, we had to go into Vietnam. Now oh, we had to do this. And any, you know, one of those could be justified under the certain circumstances, but there are plenty of examples where, to bring it up again, bring it all the way back to Marx, material interests of American businesses, of American politicians, of upcoming elections, just so happen to nicely align with a militant, tragic view of American foreign policy and what they had to do in that time, the hard decisions that they had to make that also just so happened to help out all their friends at home and help them get reelected. So all that being said, I think there actually is a, an interesting reevaluation and rethinking of the Cold War period of the greatest generation to be done from a our from Reno's perspective. To the degree that, you know, his sort of, I think what's been revealed is a sort of naivete. Or if, you know, Ronald Reagan were just to, like, shrug his massive shoulders and say, ah, it was a tragic thing that this had to happen. But alas, it was in service of the greater good. And Bruno would be like, oh, yes, yes. Oh, no, that's so true. But there is a different history to be told there about the betrayal of of this um, uh, sort of hope and dream of the tragic necessities in service of these other interests and i and i would be i'm, I'm a, based on this article and to be a, somewhat uncharitable reno doesn't
1: seem interested in this project but it would be an interesting project nonetheless it is it, i go back and forth on how much i i think is true because i mean simply is, is saying something to the effect of what's good for america is good for the world that is great messaging and you could see that sort of messaging played out in world war ii like the idea of like yes we're going to save the world from the axis and they weren't really lying about that one but i i mean this this idea of um like what is good for america is good for the world isn't necessarily an old message but i do think he is onto something in that there is just kind of an inherent optimism that you do see in the last several rounds of presidency that i think is somewhat indicative all that to say, I think you are right, Brevin, in that it just maybe it's just the fact that's a rather short article or maybe he's just wanting to paint broad strokes to get a conversation started or something like that. But his his historical project is it, it's, a, it's a questionable history, to say to say the least. I think he's on to something, but I think he needs to argue much more compellingly for it. He needs to do actual like some some more scholarship on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't much care for boomers. Sorry again to our one boomer listener. But I mean, you know, there is, I, I agree with everything he's talking about, like the entitlement and the, I don't know, like there's just, you know, you know, lacking of principles and stuff. But I think there are so many other things going on in society over these 50 years that he's trying to capture that you can't really like pin it on, ah oh, the boomer's fault. There's just, there are so many other factors with the cool down from World War II and technological development, speeding up and, and like all these other aspects. I mean, I don't know. It's, it just seems really hard to parse in a relatively short, you know, first things article. No, that, that's really all I, all I have to say on this one. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. In the words of, sorry, I'll start again just in case you didn't catch me in the words of an immortal TikTok from a cursed time, whatever you say, boomer. All right, let's move on to our, rants uh steven what rant do you have for us
1: i have a, a rather short and i hope feel good rant that uh amsterdam it really is a city that uh, it's it's lamentable that it has such a reputation i can't tell you how many jokes and sideways looks and a few just downright inappropriate comments i heard when i told people i was going to amsterdam and i'd always followed up with like just like immediately they say oh you're going to Amsterdam?" i'm like yep for a conference i'm going to For a conference for the Science of Industrial and Applied, or Society of Industrial and Applied Math. That is why I'm going. I am going for no other reason. Um, It really is unfortunate that the only thing it's known for is its red light district. Like, it is a beautiful city. Like, my goodness, just very picturesque. Like, lovely bits of architecture, canals all over the place. I, I spent, like, two hours just wandering around downtown, and it was just... My goodness, it, it was beautiful. There's, a, like, a massive cathedral that just looks sublime. So, I guess, short but sweet, give Amsterdam a chance, guys. Like, yeah, just avoid the one particular area. But, like, man, Amsterdam, it's pretty great. Uh, Brevin, you've been to Amsterdam, right? I
0: think just through the airport, actually. And it was oh, a very okay. sad trip that I'll... Maybe I'll rant about it sometime if I finally get there. But uh, for okay my my rant. Uh, I am spending a week in training with the Department of State for my job, learning basically some skills to help make America's most squishy diplomats slightly less squishy. And there are many skills that they have tried to impress upon us. Nothing to the degree to which we are exceptionally drilled or exceptionally knowledgeable in these things, but more just in the event that We have the worst day of our lives, wherever in the world that may be. We have something to fall back on. We have something just in the back of our mind that we can say, Hey, wait, they told me about this. I was trained for this. I can do this thing. And it really does sort of make me realize a whole bunch of things that could happen in just sort of ordinary life that are such life and death scenarios that I wish I would have known about this, you know, five, 10 years earlier, that someone would have just been, Hey, if someone God forbid, I hope this never happens to you. If someone you love or care about loses a limb, here's how you can save their life and keep them alive long enough for the EMTs to arrive. And that's something I did not know before this week. And I might not still be able to do it. You know, it's still dependent on any number of circumstances, but I at least have a couple of small steps that I can do that would give that person, you know, let's say a 25% more chance than they otherwise would have. And same thing with driving. If you're, uh, you know, It doesn't have to be that the person in the driver's seat of your armored SUV gets shot and you have to grab the wheel and back out of there as fast as humanly possible. It might just be that they fall asleep. But are you confident in what are you going to do if that person collapses? Do you know how to reach over, grab the wheel, and get yourself over to the side of the road? And I don't think before this week I would have said, yes, I think I know what I would do in that situation. And who knows? I could still freeze, but nonetheless, I think there are a certain set of skills that i am now somewhat fired up about that people should know about that people should look into just so that again god forbid the worst day of your life happens you can stop it from being the worst day of your life maybe you could save a life maybe you could make it into a very very near miss and those are the skills that i think are worthy of a little bit of time even just an afternoon even a day so think about what those are find out what those are and uh you know protect yourself and your family Sam.
2: yeah It's funny you say that because you're sitting on a call with two Eagle Scouts. So, yeah, you are an Eagle Scout, right? That I am. <laughs> okay, I thought you were. Okay, great. So, you're, so, I mean, this has been drilled into us for 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 years. But, but, um, no, it's good skills. My rant is much less cheaper than both of yours. Bring good heart center. Oh my gosh, th- this company. You see, I appreciate it because at my core, I am like you know, a, a a rock and roll fan, I get it. Like I get the lax attitude. And I, and I do love spending time in a, in a big old corporate guitar store funded by Mitt Romney and checking out, you know, guitars and playing them and whatever. It's fun, but Oh, oh man, try to buy one from them. And it is a saga. I'll tell you, my, my wife and parents collaborated and decided they were going to purchase for me a nice, a nice new acoustic guitar for my my uh, birthday a couple weeks ago um and they wanted me to pick it out because i'm particular about this kind of thing and also like the big investment so it should be one that i'm going to be proud of for decades in the future and i did my research and i made multiple visits and tried different guitars and found the one i wanted at a different store uh new and it was it's out of my budget it just is uh it's even out of the budget that they that they generously gave for this and so i found it used at guitar center in Yonkers, and Yonkers is basically like it's the city right outside of New York City. It's like two hours away. It's like it's like it's right right up there. And I got this guitar ordered down, which the pros they do order it down so I can try it out in Brooklyn. That was on Saturday. It's not Thursday. And I've called. It was going to be shipped on Sunday. I've called every, since Tuesday, every day, and every day they're like, "Oh yeah, no, it's still here. I see it right here. It's being shipped tomorrow on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and on Thursday." And I call in the morning and check in with the operations people. I'm like, are you shipping today? They're like, yes, we are. We are packing it up. I see your tailor right here. I'm going to pack it up and ship it today. And I call in the evening, wait on hold for somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes. And I'm told, oh, no, we didn't ship that today. You should call back tomorrow and let them know that you really need this. I've had it. And I wish I would have just spent the extra $300 to buy this guitar new. And I swear it's a coming in Brooklyn, and it's gonna have a crack across the back of it. And I'm gonna need to buy it new anyway after waiting over a week for this thing. Anyway, I'm mad. I'm mad at the at not being able to get a musical, a, a handcrafted musical instrument in under five days because I'm that entitled. But here's where we're at.
1: Modern society, man. I know, right? Anyway, well,
0: uh, I suppose. While Sam continues to wait for his musical instrument that will aid in the emergence of his authentic self, so he can mold himself in a plasticky fashion. Uh, I guess we can say for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin, I'm Steven, I'm Sam, and uh, God is dead. And
1: where will we bury his bones? At a Newsboys concert.
0: Very good. But the old newsboys, right? Not the new one. Oh, like, the new the ones classic
1: the bad. newsboys con.
0: Classic. Man. Okay, I might toss in like a classic like, How newsboys about like song.
1: breakfast?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> when the toast is
0: burnt, Oh,
1: that brings back some memories. That was like the first CD I ever owned was newsboys shine the
0: head. I think I
1: still have a few
2: newsplays to use somewhere.
0: Hold the milk, put back the
1: sugar. They are powerless to console. We gathered here to sprinkle ashes from our late free cereal bowl. Breakfast lovers say the motto that he taught us to repeat. You rollers in your gym class. If you wait till midnight, back when the chess club set out, it's worse off. Every Monday it's a grace and hold our juice a love.